I was doing a play in Carolina, got a telegram, a telegram back then from George, and it said, um, we got another gig, start thinking of ways to kill people. And that was Dawn of the Dead. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror star creators. The terror begins right after this. Eli Ross' History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to begin your seven-day free trial. Tom Savini is a towering figure in the history of horror and a personal hero of mine. As a creator of special effects makeup, he brought a terrifying new level of realism to classics like Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creepshow, Maniac, and Friday the 13th, films that earned him the nickname The Wizard of Gore. As an actor and stuntman, he's appeared in From Dust Till Dawn, Planet Terror, Django Unchained, and many other films. He directed the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead and recently helmed the season one finale of Shudder's Creepshow TV series. Tom is a human dynamo. He also runs his own special effects makeup school. He's bursting with ideas and enthusiasm, as you'll hear in this in-depth interview with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga. We were talking before we were rolling about Stephen King. Oh, Stephen King. You know, I wasn't surprised when he got hit by that van, remember? Because uh, when we did Creepshow, he wasn't around, and we were looking for him. And I, I drove to a store, and here's Stephen King walking down the middle of an eight-lane highway on the medium strip, reading a book and drinking a Perrier, you know. So <laughs> when I heard he got hit by a van, I was, yeah, not surprising if he's going to do stuff like that, you know, so. But I took him with me to the store, and, uh, you know, we bought stuff. I gave my credit card. He gave his, and the girl was like, oh, I suppose you're the Stephen King. And he wasn't saying anything. And I'm like, yes. It's <laughs> no, he was great fun. He was great fun on uh, Creepshow. He's had such an amazing effect on the genre from the time he broke out right up to today. Especially lately, huh? With all the stuff that's going on. It. What do you think of the new version of it? I, haven't, I own it, but I haven't watched it yet. It has a lot of practical effects. Well, I love when that happens. You know, there's a, it seems to be making a comeback. You know, J.J. Abrams used a lot of practical stuff in the new Star Wars movie. Evil Dead came out, and they were bragging that there was no CGI in it, you know. So I, I, I know why they do a lot of the CGI. Like Greg Nicotero might tell you, 
He directed an episode of Walking Dead where a group of people, one by one, were getting their throat cut and blood was, you know, gushing. And they didn't even put appliances on them. The tubing was there. The visual effects guys would erase the tubing later. But there was no cleanup, so they could do take after take after take. If I had to redo tearing Joe Pilato in half in Day of the Dead, that's five hours, you know, of work before you can shoot it again. So less cleanup you know, in a lot of the cases. So CGI does have its uses. They haven't mastered a few things, you know, people falling off, cars hitting, blood spattering, you know, but uh, it's a tool. I, I, I love it when it's done well. I wish I had it when I was trying to solve problems doing practical effects, you know. If you see my stuff, it was happening right in front of you. Rick Baker's transformation in American Way, that, that happened right in front of you, you know, so. And people feel that. They know that and appreciate that, you know. It's, um, it's a magic trick. It's uh, like the same way a, a magician fools you, you know. He's missed, he makes you look here and he's pulling flowers out of his butt, you know. Or they have mechanical devices you're not aware of, you know, that, that we're aware of, you know. And that's the magic trick. You mentioned Rick Baker. You and Rick and Rob Boutin were at the forefront of a great leap forward in makeup effects in the 1980s. Rob Boutin, he's a genius. Well, Rick is also a genius, I think. I had dinner with John Carpenter at George Romero's house. And he said, do you know Rob Bottin? I said, oh, yeah, I love that guy. He said, that motherfucker. Well, and it shocked me. He says he would keep us waiting on a couch for three days at a time, waiting for an effect. But when he showed up, it blew our mind. It was just incredible stuff. Way over the top, the stuff in Total Recall, you know, the thing. The thing is uh, his masterpiece of splatter, you know. Mine was Day of the Dead, but that thing, that just... Uh, well, like Rick Baker's transformation. Uh, and if you look at it today, I mean, it's not crude, but not as polished as, say, uh, the Wolfman transformation in the, the Wolfman movie. I, I'd love to know what Rick had planned for that before they took over with CGI, because that would have happened right in front of you. Joe Dante told me they had a rough time shooting that big werewolf jamboree at the end of The Howling because it took so long to get the contact lenses into the actors and people could only wear them for a short time. Yeah, they can only be in like a certain way, especially if they're hard lenses. Did you ever see a movie called Innocent Blood? Yeah. Okay, that's Steve Johnson, speaking of contact lenses. When Anne Patio, when they were making love, he had special lenses in her eyes and only the camera man could see the effect of a rotating Christmas light. Red, yellow, green. And when every time a different color went in front of the lens, the eyes changed to that color. He had some kind of phosphorescent ultraviolet thing going on. So they're making love, and when she was at the height of her passion, her eyes went purple. Boy, it just fit. It was just so emotionally fitting to see that there was that level of warmth or purple passion, whatever was going on. But that was a little magic trick that Steve Johnson came up with. You know, the fun is inventing how to do this stuff. You know, the script kind of is sometimes very vague. We see a flash of fur and teeth. Well, I got to create a creature from that that comes out of a crate underneath steps in Creepshow, you know. So I had a bunch of my artist friends do sketches of monsters, what it could look like. I did some. And Stephen King and George looked at them all and, and, and picked one of mine. And that's why, you know, the monster looks the way he does. But I had to invent that, you know, and that's fun. It's kind of like when George Romero uh, directs. As an actor, he lets you improvise. You know, good directors don't think of everything. They listen to everybody and pick the best stuff, you know. But George would let you improvise. And even effects stuff, George would just let you improvise. Dawn of the Dead, you know, 80% of the effects in that were stuff that we came up with. We'd go to George and say, hey, how about if we drive a screwdriver through a, a zombie's ear? You go, 
okay. So then two hours later, we're making retractable screwdrivers and, you know, making it bleed inside a zombie's ear. So, and that's great fun when you're doing stuff that the script isn't dictating you do, but you came up with, you know, so. What I've read, the Dawn of the Dead shoot sounded pretty fun. Well, it was Halloween every day. We did that for three months in a shopping mall. You couldn't do that today. You couldn't ride motorcycles through a shopping mall today. We were doing that, you know. And um, the only damage that occurred was uh, we would make up zombies, and one of the bars was still open. Zombies would go in and drink in the bar and get drunk, steal a golf cart and crash it into a marble pillar or something, you know. How did you get the job with Romero and Dawn of the Dead? I met George when I was a sophomore in high school. He was doing a film that never happened, and he was looking for uh, two kids, a boy and a girl. And I went to an all-boy high school, a Catholic high school, 1,500 students, and uh, we did a reading, and he picked me. And uh, the movie never happened. But years later, he was gearing up to do Martin, the vampire movie. I went down, I wanted to audition for the vampire. But he remembered me from the high school days, and I had a portfolio, and I was flipping pages and showing him my work, my makeup work, following him from room to room, you know. Oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't Martin. It was Night of the Living Dead. He was gearing up to do Night of... He said, we can use you on this gig, you know. But I had enlisted in the Army to stay out of Vietnam. I figured if I enlisted and chose my own school that I wouldn't have to go infantry. But as soon as I graduated from the photo school, they sent me right over, see. So I was in Vietnam. They called me in when he made Night of the Living Dead. But it came full circle because I directed the remake of Night of the Living Dead, you know. But I missed out on, on that. But that's how I met him in high school. And then uh, Martin, he hired me to do the effects, and I played a part and did the stunts. So he's pretty familiar with, you know, what I could do. So I was doing a play in Carolina. Got a telegram, a telegram back then from George, and it said, um, we got another gig. Start thinking of ways to kill people. And that was Dawn of the Dead. Your effects work became famous because it was so much more realistic and visceral. That's because of Vietnam. Vietnam was a lesson in anatomy for me. I was a combat photographer. I saw horrible stuff, you know, hor- but, but my, my mindset, looking through the camera, which was a safety bridge, okay, my mindset was, how would I create that? You know, how would I create what I'm looking at? The blood after a day turns brown, you know, most makeup artists don't know that. In fact, I'm the only makeup artist, I think, that has seen the real stuff, you know, lots of the real stuff. And that's one of my complaints about horror movies, when people die. Um, all of your muscles go slack. They don't work anymore. You know, and these are muscles that hold the jaw closed. In a movie, when someone dies, they close their mouth and they want to look pretty for the camera, you know. And that just takes me right out of it, because that actor doesn't know how to portray death. Or the director doesn't know to tell them the mouth always goes slack. Every dead body, the mouth always goes slack, except for upside-down special circumstances. So, um, what am I talking about? Oh, uh, Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so how would I create that? And uh, I thought of it as special effects. Horrible stuff I was seeing. And that might have saved me somewhat. I think I had PTSD when I came back. I didn't call it that back then, you know, but I was a zombie when I came back. Because you have to turn your emotions off when you're looking at that stuff. And they don't just click right back on. A movie brought my emotions back, believe it or not. Uh, my marriage went in the toilet because I'm just uh, walking around feeling less person, you know. But I went to see Midnight Cowboy. And when Dustin Hoffman died in that movie, I went berserk. I'm in a the theater with my ex-wife and uh, cried hysterically when that happened. And I, I don't think it was just because of Dustin Hoffman and the character and all that. I think all that pent-up emotion came back. And, and, and even after the whole theater was empty and I'm still whimpering and my, my friend and my wife were calming me down, we walked outside. And, uh, you know, the poles that hold up the marquee, you know, 
I collapsed again, grabbing a pole, crying hysterically. And from that day on, I could appreciate a sunset or I had normal feelings again that I had kept suppressed because of, you know, Vietnam. I'm lucky. A lot of guys that didn't happen to. So were you able to deal with some of those images in your head by taking them and putting them into your work? That has a lot to do with my reputation for realism, you know, because my stuff had to be anatomically correct, you know. I get letters from kids. They glued a sponge to their head and poured blood over it. And with a letterhead, Joe Blow's special makeup effects dude, he knows nothing about effects, you know. (laughs) But he wants to be, I mean, makeup effects is a celebrity. People want to be a part of it, you know. But you have to learn. The first thing I say is learn how, you know, learn how, take pictures, put those pictures in front of people that can, uh, you know, help or hire you. But uh, for me, it was, uh, it has to be anatomically correct. Because when you look at it, it's like, oh, oh, that, that must be how it is. Because it, it does affect you emotionally to see something so strikingly realistic, you know. Is there a certain glee that comes with scaring people? Oh, hell yeah. I love scaring people. No, I'll be I'll be lying in my bed. Okay, I'm lying in my bed. My my wife was my girlfriend at the time. She goes downstairs to get out to go to the bathroom or something. And I think, okay, I've got to scare her. Okay, so I have this severed head of myself from a movie. So I put the severed head of myself in the bed and fluff up the pillows like I'm still lying there. And I go hide in the closet. I'm in the closet and I can only see through this much. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. You have to be patient to scare people, okay? So I hear her coming back. Now I'm ready. I'm in the closet. And now I watch her. She's sneaking in. She's going to scare me in the bed. So she jumps on the bed to scare me. My head rolls off the pillow. She screams and flies backwards. I jump out of the closet and scare her again. I got her twice, you know. So that's an example of, you know, uh, or if I hear kids playing outside, I'll grab the crate creature from Creepshow and sneak. I'm in my underwear, and I'm sneaking down the alleyway to scare them outside. Yeah, there was a lot of glee in scaring people. Because even when I went to the movies to watch my work, I wouldn't watch the movie. I'd pick somebody out in the audience and watch the evolution of their heart attack, you know? What were some of the biggest reactions you've gotten from an audience? Something where you thought, wow, that really worked. I think the number one is in Dawn of the Dead when the the zombie gets the top of his head lopped off with the helicopter blades. That gets applause in the theaters. A guy's getting the top of his head sliced off and, yeah, I love it, you know. And that was it's a simple effect. The helicopter blades were animated in later. They weren't even there. All we did was yank the top of the guy's head off and pump blood to shoot out. And the actor did a pretty good job of, you know, collapsing. But that... That gets applause. Uh, Creepshow, when Fluffy kills Adrian Barbeau, because she's such a nasty, you know, bitch, can I say that, in the film, that they really liked seeing her go, you know. And you have felt that way when you've seen movies, too. Uh, when a nasty person gets it, you know, it's like, you, know, you said the word glee. It is glee. To me, it's bliss. <laughs> Not just glee, you know. <laughs> Another one of your early hits, Friday the 13th. Right after Dawn of the Dead is when I did Friday the 13th. Sean Cunningham, I think, saw Dawn of the Dead and said, we got to get this guy. So they called me, we had a meeting. And um, again, we came up with a lot of stuff. Like when Jason comes out of the lake at the end, that's not in the script. Because I had just seen Carrie. And in Carrie, the end of the movie, the music is swelling. You expect the credits to roll any second. And that hand came out of the grave and scared the hell out of you, you know. So let's do something like that. Yeah, but Jason's dead. Make it a dream. 
Because for some reason, the audience forgives anything when they find out it's a dream. Wasn't there a TV series, Dallas or JR, where the opening of some season, he comes out of the shower and it was all a dream. The previous season was a dream. They get away with that. I mean, you just get away with that. If I can go off on a tangent a little bit, dreams are a big deal in my life. This is magic that we take for granted every day. When you're eight or nine years old, and for me, it was like when you go see a movie, it's usually a horror movie, okay? When you're eight or nine, you believe everything that's going on up there. They stitch together some bodies and it's back to life. Oh my God, that was, Frankenstein was horrifying. As an eight or nine-year-old child, Dracula, what he's going to, this elegant, rich-looking guy is going to suck blood out of somebody? You know, these are preposterous situations, but totally believable when you're eight or nine. However, when you start working behind the scenes, that magic of realism, of believing, is gone. You've destroyed that magic forever when you get behind the scenes because it's camera angles, it's lighting, it's physical apparatus, you know. And I found a way to bring that magic back uh, to me personally, and that's by just changing your mindset. And you have that power. I have a friend that's a psychiatrist, and she says all she does mostly all day is to get their patients to change the way they think of something, change their mindset. And you have that power over your mind, you know, you can control, because your subconscious, there's a great book, Power of Now. Did you ever read that book, Power of Now? Okay. Eckhart Tolle, he says that if you sit in a chair and you try to make your mind blank, what happens? You're bombarded. Your subconscious is throwing out, I mean, horrible. Your subconscious has no mercy. It's throwing out horrible images at you, you know. You have the power to turn that off. He says 99% of those thoughts that are coming at you are hurts from the past and worries about the future. So you're not in the now, you know? You're someplace else. You're in two places that you can't do anything about, really, okay? But you have the power to stop those thoughts. And it's, you know, it's meditation where you make your mind blank. And it's really the basic you, the you that you are without the subconscious bombarding you, okay? So I whittled that down to a guy that's sitting on my shoulder whispering horrible things in my ear, and I'm able to tell him, shut the fuck up, or don't bother me with that right now, where other people would let it affect them and they're depressed, they're, they're full of anxiety. You have the power to turn that off, okay? So I brought the magic back to movies in myself by thinking of them as a dream I'm having. It's a dream. My friends laugh at me when I tell them that I enjoyed the hell out of Van Helsing. Oh, but the CGI and, you know, I'm, that's something they're doing. This is my dream. It's actually a fever dream if you want to think about it. Van Helsing is a fever dream that you would have about horror movies, okay? That's how I saw it when I saw it. And I only saw it that way because I changed my mindset while watching it, you know? It's a dream. So it's my dream. So I'm not, I don't care about the camera angles and what they're thinking of what they're doing. I'm having the dream. And that brings back the eight or nine-year-old eyes of the child back then watching a movie. And that's, I had to do that to make it real. Otherwise, I used to have to see a movie eight or nine times to see the story, you know? I took my, my daughter was in love with Bram Stoker's Dracula. She's nine years old. She made me take her over and over again. And I'm sure there were people in the theater going, what the hell's that guy doing with this little girl? But if you sat next to her, she's saying, dad, is that yak hair or human hair? Are they using foam latex or gelatin? I'm shut up. It's hard enough for me not to think of that stuff. And she's totally in effects mode, you know? So anyway. To your point, I think all movies are dreams brought to the screen, especially horror films, because they don't have to be so naturalistic. 
you're having a dream and absurd things are going on. I'll search for my car all night in a dream, and when I find it, it's this big and I can't get in it. And it's, I'm pissed off. I accept that as fact, true. The absurdities that occur in your dreams. But, but okay, here's the thing. And this is what I mean by people take it for granted. You have this magic in your life that is dreams, okay? You're seeing without using your eyeballs. You're hearing sounds that don't exist. I mean, you're unconscious lying in bed, but yet you've created every aspect of that dream. I mean, have you ever had a dream where you're in a beautiful set full of things and details, and, and it's as solid as this in your dream? You've created that. I don't want to get religious, and because I'm, I'm not religious, but uh, I understand when people are talking about, you know, God is within you. Your thoughts are creating things in your dreams that if you believe that a force thoughts create, you know, God said, let there be this, let there be that, you know. Well, who was he talking to? Okay. I always say that to religious zealots. Okay, when God said, let there be light, who was he talking to? And they're stumped, you know. But if that's the fact that he's created everything by just thinking about it, you do that every night when you dream. You're creating something as solid as everything that's around us. So that, in effect, is you playing God. You're creating all that. Huh? The best thing is having a lucid dream where you realize you're dreaming. Oh, well, I'm going to go fly or rob a bank or do something because I know I'm not responsible for it. You know, I'm going to wake up and, you know. So that's an aspect of dreams that to me is magic, you know, that we do this and just take for granted that we're creating worlds, you know. And and that does relate to people having dreams and making films out of it. You know, you're always talking about your dreams coming true. I prefer to say goals, you know, coming true because, you know, yeah. David Lynch is a filmmaker who consciously makes films that play like dreams. Eraserhead was a bad dream. Yeah, ooh. I don't know what I'm watching. There are movies that I will never watch again. Ken Russell's The Devils. The Cruelty. I watched Mother the other night. I'll never watch that again. It was so uncomfortable. It was so... Um, Last House on the Left. I will never watch that movie again. The Cruelty. I don't want to see people exposed to that. There's the Stendhal syndrome. There's a rape scene. I will never watch that movie again. I was talking to Kate earlier about, again, your subconscious has no mercy. It throws stuff at you, you know? So I don't want to feed my subconscious with stuff that it's going to throw back at me, like those scenes from those movies, you know? It may sound weird coming from me, but I am disturbed by a lot of horrible stuff that happens in horror movies, you know? A lot of stuff in the slasher films, at the time, they're accused of being misogynist. And yet, when you look at the body counts, it's pretty equal. I've been called that. And I had to prove that I killed more men than women in movies, because I was, I was the misogynist. And I don't write this stuff, you know, I'm executing what the script says as far as the special effects go, you know. I think that attitude has changed now that entire generations have grown up with slashers. Yeah, yeah. Well, to me, it was it came in cycles, you know. First, there were the monsters, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula. And then there was the psychological terror, Psycho, you know. And then the bloodbath, Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Then it came back to the monsters, Predator, Alien, you know. Then the psychological terror, Hand that Rocks the Cradle. And then Scream. I don't know what cycle we're in now as far as horror movies go. The torture porn cycle basically ended in 2008, along with the Bush administration. Thank God, yeah. I just, I avoided seeing any of that stuff. That's not entertainment to me, you know, because uh, that's real. 
Frankenstein, not real, myth. Jason, Friday the 13th, you know, it doesn't exist. In fact, I always thought that Jason shouldn't be around because he was a kid that died in the first movie, you know. The mother was the killer. They sent me the script for part two, and I turned it down. But you've got Jason running around here. Oh, no, 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 we're going to change that. Well, they didn't. So I chose The Burning instead, Miramax's first film, Harvey Weinstein, you know, uh, the first film. They were concert promoters before that. So then the series was waning, part three, you know, was 3D. And so part four, that's why part four is called the final chapter. Part four was going to be the last Friday the 13th movie. So I, I accepted that and I killed Jason. I cut his brain in half, you know. But it made so much money that uh, there's going to be a Friday the 13th part 13, I'm sure. I just designed all the kills in the video game that's out there right now. And uh, it's been a while since I've been the sultan of splatter, wizard of gore, you know. And I became that again with the game, you know. And I didn't realize that it was a surprise because it's one thing to sit there and write what and that's what I, that's all I did was write the kills, like 80 kills, you know, for the game. And then when I saw the game, oh my God, it's brutal, it's horrible. Yet I created all that stuff, you know. And it's so popular that we had to create 26 more deaths recently and throw them in, you know. So, yeah, it's going crazy. The game is going crazy all over the world. So these things have a life of their own, especially with horror films. Somebody will come up with a good idea and make an effective movie, then they'll crank out the sequels and the clones. Blair Witch, the found video. How many found videos movie came out after that, you know? I think the preview was scarier than the movie, uh, especially with Blair Witch, you know, yeah. But yeah, you're right, uh, yeah, they, they copy it. My stuff is copied all the time. What makes for a good on-screen effect? I know you say anatomical accuracy, but what else plays well in camera? It's a mindset. I tell my students the mindset that you need to have as a special makeup effects artist is, what do I need to see to make me believe that what I'm seeing is really happening. And that transfers to what do I need to create to make an audience believe that what they're seeing is really happening. And if it's a film, well, it's easy. You create the pieces, okay? And I use a, a great example of that, Dario Argento's trauma. I had to do an effect where Piper Laurie, who played the mother in Carrie, the original Carrie, you know, was a famous actor around the James Dean time, okay? Her head has to come off and roll on the floor. And as it's rolling on the floor... Every time her face came up, she had to say the word Nicholas, 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 as her head is rolling on the floor. And I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this, you know? And I want to do a great job for Dario, you know, as having worked with him. So the mindset of what do I need to see to make me believe that what I'm seeing is really happening came into play. And that was, okay, her head has to come off. Well, that's easy. You put a wig on a head from behind and the head will come off. And that was horrible on the set. It took 17 takes because the head kept sticking to the body when it fell, you know. And when it finally rolled away, Dario screamed, yeah, we all applauded, okay. So now our head has to roll on the floor. Now, to me, I don't care how good it is, a fake head in a movie, if you get to look at it longer than three seconds, you know it's fake. Arnold Schwarzenegger looking in the mirror in Terminator, you knew that was a fake head. The guy that tears his face apart in Poltergeist, okay. Steven Spielberg's hands coming up. Well, you got to stare at that so you knew it was fake. The exception would be Kevin Yeager's heads for Sleepy Hollow, the heads he created. They were spectacular. You could stare at those all day. They were real severed heads. Okay, so that's my thinking. Well, okay, a fake head. I articulate the lips mechanically to make them say Nicholas when the head rolls. So Piper Laurie shows up, and she's claustrophobic. We can't cast her head. We cannot make a fake head of Piper Laurie to mechanize 
and roll and say the word Nicholas. So again, this mindset, what do I need to see? So I took Piper Laurie's real head and put an appliance on her that made her own head look like a severed head and painted it black from the appliance down, and she was dressed in black. I sat her on a spinning bar stool, and I had the physical effects guys take the floor and build it upright and put it on wheels. So I wheeled the floor behind her, sitting in a chair, spinning, and turned the camera upside down. Because if you see an upside-down severed head, you're really not going to imagine a body could be attached to it, you know? And Dario walks in, it's like, what the hell are you doing, you know? So I showed him a video test in slow motion, fast motion. He was floored, because there's the effect of Piper Laurie's severed head that you could stare at all day because it's a real head. And she said the word Nicholas every time she turned around on the stool. And this is something that a lot of directors don't think of, that these are magic tricks. And this does not come out from any genius. It comes from that mindset, which I tell my students, you know, that you need to have to make an effect work in a movie. So to answer your question, what needs to be believable, okay, anatomically correct, Okay. And real. I mean, even though, and this plays me all the time and has to do with the absurdity of dreams, okay? You're sitting in a theater pretending that what you're seeing on the screen is really occurring. These are actors pretending, and we all shake hands and agree to this concept of, I will pretend that this is really happening because you're pretending. And we're all just having, it's a party. We're having fun doing that, you know. And that's, again, the magic of movies. And speaking of that, I hardly ever go to a movie theater anymore to see a movie. When I was a kid, they were palaces of magic, you know. You would go on an adventure or have this incredible experience by sitting in the seat, you know, and the screen makes your life disappear and your life now becomes what you're watching. I don't do that in movie theaters hardly anymore because I'm too full of anxiety of how many people I'm going to have to tell to turn off that damn cell phone or shut up and stop talking to the screen. Again, these are palace, temples, churches, let's say. They don't have this worship anymore, the new generation with bright cell phones. You know, you're watching a movie. By God, get involved, you know. In the 80s, special makeup effects artists like you became celebrities. People would want to see what you'd come up with next. Oh, no, no, it's still going on. It's still going on. The TV series Face Off helps keep that alive. In fact, my students keep winning. We won the last two seasons. My students won the last two seasons of Face Off. And we keep winning the spinoff, whichever it is now. But stuff like Face Off is what keeps makeup effects as a celebrity. I mean, I have a school, you know, in Pennsylvania. They come from all over the world. It's 16 months, you know. And kids who want to be a special makeup effects artist because of some magical moment that they've seen in a movie come to the school and learn how to do this stuff. Remember I said that people ask me, how do I become? Well, learn how, first of all, you know, and take pictures and all that, you know. So that's what my school does. I mean, you go there and you learn how to do this stuff, harping on authenticity, anatomy, you know. Again, to continue answering the question, that's what makes it real. That's what makes it, you know, believable on the screen. Before you and Baker and Bottin, there was Dick Smith. Well, he was the greatest living makeup artist. He invented all the stuff that we do, Dick Smith, all the formulas, all the foam latex, gelatin, elasticizers, 
You know, he invented all that stuff. And guys like Rick Baker and myself take it and maybe add something to it and enhance it, you know. But it all comes from Dick Smith. He invented special makeup effects. He would come to my school and do portfolio reviews. Also, um, if you can't afford to travel to my school, and a lot of people, families can't, kids, you know, whatever, the Dick Smith course is something that you can order. It's the least expensive like if you come to my school, you learn a couple of ways to cast a head. There's nine ways to do it in Dick Smith's course, okay? So it's a great thing where you can study at home. You buy your own materials, you know, study at home. So uh, I made a deal with Dick Smith to, uh, we would sell his course to my students. You know, 80 students come in October, 25 in January and February. So I said, we could sell a lot of courses that way. But so he gave us a discount. We would hand the course to every student that came into my school. So that's how I finally was able to thank Dick Smith. Because when I was growing up, you couldn't learn this stuff. There's no place to learn it. Everybody kept their secrets, makeup artists. You know, they weren't sharing that. But if you called Dick Smith, which I had done many times, the first time I called him, I couldn't speak. I was so overwhelmed that the god of makeup is on the phone with me. And, I said, and, he, and he sensed that. He said, look, next time, make a list of your questions so that you can ask me stuff, you know, because I was floundering, you know. Because when he answered the phone, he says, like, it was almost like, what do you want? I'm busy. You know, oh, shit. Okay, Dick Smith. But two hours later, two hours later, he's still talking to me and telling me how to do stuff over the phone. If I would ask him his blood formula or something about foam latex. And then he would Xerox it because it was Xerox back then. He would Xerox it and then mail it to you, the information. So that's one of the reasons I have my school to to payback, to teach, because Dick Smith was so generous with teaching all of us his techniques. Were you calling him during Dawn of the Dead? Yeah. No, no, and I wish I had, because if you see Dawn of the Dead, the blood is horrible. The blood looks like melted crayons. It is this like, like red paint, the blood. I wish they would go in and change somehow the blood in Dawn of the Dead. It was only uh, before Friday the 13th that I was able to get, because I stopped at Dick Smith's house on the way to Connecticut to shoot uh, Friday. I'd asked him his blood formula, and that changed everything, you know, as far as the blood goes, anyway. Most realistic blood. Uh, you know what? When he worked on The Godfather, Coppola was always complaining about the blood. The blood doesn't look real to me. Dick Smith slashed his finger open and pulled out and squeezed out a bunch of blood and went to Coppola and said, well, what about this blood? Oh, it looks terrible. It's real blood, Francis, that I'm bleeding for you to show you. And his blood formula, of course, looked exactly like it, you know. When Kevin Bacon gets pierced by the arrow on Friday the 13th, how did you do that? Oh, um, all right. Well, Kevin Bacon was uh, sitting upright underneath the bed. Only his head came through the bed, and a fake neck and chest was attached to him. His real arms, of course, were there. And the fake arm and chest had a, the same wife beater on. We put the gold chain that he was wearing on that. And I'm actually, uh, I've got the arrow positioned behind the fake neck inside an ice bag full of blood. So when I pushed the arrow, I could actually squeeze the blood bag and force the blood to come out of the hole, okay? So I'm actually pushing the arrow uh, through the fake chest and neck. And my assistant was pumping the blood. Now, while he was pumping the blood, the tubing came off the blood pump. And during the take, he grabbed it and blew through it, which caused the nice gurgling of the blood. So it was a happy accident that made the effect, you know, uh, so much better. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I'm first degree. I killed him. We've talked about magic tricks, and there's so many great ones you've created. 
Are there any highlights in your mind? Creepshow? It's, you know, five little movies, you know, one after another. Um, the cockroaches that come out of E.G. Marshall. I was never in the same room with those cockroaches from Creepshow. The stories that the entomologists told of collecting those roaches in Trinidad, in caves, are scarier than any movie you've ever seen. The, the roaches live in bat dung, bat guano. They would stick these entomologists, all they did was put rubber bands around their pants legs and put a graphite light on their head, you know. They would reach down through the bat guano and dig a hole in the bat shit, okay. Turn the lights off and wait like 60 seconds, turn the lights back on. The hole would be filled with those roaches. And they would quickly stuff them in plastic bags. We're talking monster roaches, you know. If you've seen Creepshow, these are the biggest roaches, you know, you've ever seen. And they brought back 18,000 of these roaches, and they bred them in a trailer called the Roach Motel. They, would, they bred like 10,000 more roaches. The biggest ones were George's. They were named George. The medium ones were Stephen King, Steve, Steve's. And the smallest ones were the producer, Richard Rubenstein, Richard's. So George could say, bring me 5,000 George's, you know, 10,000 Steve's. But what we found out was when they dumped the roaches in the scene, they disappeared. So we had to paint pistachio peanut shells black, and that's what most of the roaches were, peanut shells. So that was a magic trick that people aren't aware of, the fact that all those roaches. I said I was never in the same room with those cockroaches. I was looking through a room, into a sealed room, through a window, queuing the blood to be pumped on the roaches that were, the entomologists stuffed big syringes with all these roaches. And by pushing the handle of the syringe is how they made them come out of E.G. Marshall's mouth. And we pumped blood on them so they would leave little bloody footprints. I couldn't figure out how to make them come out of E.G. Marshall's chest. And it was George Romero that said, pre-cut the hole and cover it with toilet paper, then make up the toilet paper with the same skin tone. Because, you know, Creepshow was five movies. I did all the effects. Me and a 17-year-old kid did all the effects, you know. I was kind of worn out when it came to making cockroaches. And boy, did that work. They just came right through that toilet paper. And we did the same thing in Romero's movie, Two Evil Eyes, where a thing has to go into a guy's chest. We did a pre-cut hole toilet paper, and it worked. The audience doesn't know if there's toilet paper with hair glued to it, that it's not the guy's real chest, you know, so... Creepshow is a good example of other things like Fluffy, the crate creature. I had never built an animatronic creature before. So I called Rob Bottin on the phone, because you could call him on the phone back then. Try to call him today. I called him on the phone because he had done Tanya's Island, which was this gorgeous animatronic, kind of a gorilla man type thing. And he spent hours on the phone telling me step by step how to make it. And then when I went to L.A. for the premiere of Night Riders, a movie that I was in, he came to the premiere, took me to his house, and he actually tore the skins off the things from the howling. Well, I don't care about the skins. It's the mechanism that's important. He tore the skins off to show me how the mechanisms worked in the heads, the fake heads that he was making. Brilliant. So helpful, you know. I just wish, I wish he was still out there in the business, you know. But that's the only way I learned how to make an animatronic creature. So Fluffy, to me, is a big magic trick as far as, you know, a creature that lived been living in a crate for all this time. The roaches. Um, Stephen King as Geordie Verrill, you know. I didn't do a lot of that. Uh, the costume people did a lot of the green stuff on him. Because he's claustrophobic. We couldn't cast his head. Of all the stuff I've done in movies, everything has worked. Because you have second take, third take, you can make it work after the fourth take. But nothing we tried on Stephen King worked. And I wanted to impress this guy. It's Stephen King, you know. 
We had to hand the crew plants, couldn't get it to work. We couldn't get the green lenses in his eyes, couldn't get them in. Had to tongue the crew plants, couldn't get it to work. But that's the only thing in my career that we couldn't get to work, the stuff we tried on Stephen King. If you had to choose between a slasher movie and a zombie movie, which would you choose? <laughs> well, uh, who did the slasher movie? Yeah, that has a lot to do with it. A zombie movie. Ah, well, you know, zombie anymore is like a big generalization. Like 28 days later, those aren't zombies. They're just fucked up people, you know. Um, but people think they're zombies. To me, the zombies that you haven't seen would be the voodoo, Haiti type of uh, scopolamine-induced, uh, in distilled zombies, okay? I have a great script called Death Island, which has that kind of zombie. Let me tell you a quick Vietnam story. Before I went to Vietnam, they sent us to this combat training a school, okay, two or three weeks, where you're jumping off trucks and people are firing blanks at you, and it really made you feel like, you know, you're in a war zone, okay? But every day started off the same. You would hike or jog three miles into the woods, and there'd be bleachers. And you would sit in the bleachers, and some sergeant would come out and give you a lesson, you know, how to take the M16 apart, blah, 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 blah. So one time we jog out to the bleachers. We're sitting there for like 15 minutes and no one is coming out to teach us anything, you know. It's kind of cold and it's uncomfortable and, you know, you're wondering. I think maybe 20 minutes went by and, you know, the tree line was where that wall is over there and, you know, we're staring at the trees all day waiting for somebody to come teach us something. So a drill sergeant comes out and he gets on a walkie-talkie and he's like, Sergeant so-and-so, move your men. And the 35 guys that were standing right in front of us in camo walked toward us and scared the fuck because they were there the whole time. The lesson of the day was camo works, okay? And they could have killed us anytime they wanted to. We never saw them and they're standing 35 guys right in front of us. You know, that scared the shit out of me. So in this Death Island script, it's hoodoo, voodoo, Haiti sort of, and they're all black and they're shaved heads and they're scarred and they've got mud on them, you know, and they kind of look camouflaged. So there's a scene in there where the director is talking to the heroine, you know, and they walk away and then we pause uncomfortably on the trees behind them and the 18 or so zombies that were standing there start to walk forward. So I tried to incorporate that into that screenplay. And it also was a suspense builder because now you are not aware of the zombies, you know, standing around you. So um, maybe I'd see the zombie movie because um, there's a lot of possibilities in there. The one thing I wanted to do when I directed Night of the Living Dead with those zombies is I went to George Romero and I said, um, I would love to have a zombie point of view, a kind of a decrepit, black and white, decayed zombie point of view. So when you see that, you know that you're looking through a zombie's eyes. He said, well, they're, they're dead. You know, they wouldn't have that. I said, yeah, but they're not walking into walls and tripping over it. They can see, okay? If I could have a zombie point of view, then if you and I are sitting here talking in the cabin or whatever, you know, and you get that zombie point of view of us 40 feet away, as soon as you cut back to us, the scare has started because you know they're nearby. Or when are they going to show up? The best scares to me come from suspense. Anybody can jump up and go boo. And they do it even in major horror movies. In the Wolfman movie, you know, um, cat jumping out of a box, you know, birds flying through a window. These are chair jumpers, okay? And that scare lasts for a couple of seconds. And Hitchcock was an expert at the suspense scares. And those are the best ones, okay? Here's a room. There's a door here, and there's a door here. Show behind this door the monster, 
the psycho, the tentacled creature, the bomb, whatever it is, show it behind this door. So as soon as the girl walks in, and it's usually a girl because it's a horror movie, as soon as she walks in, the scare has started. Oh, please, get to the door so I can see what's going to happen, okay? And you, the anxiety is there. Now, if you're smart, if you're a good director, you slow her down. The phone rings. The entire time she's on that phone, you're, get off that phone and get to the door. I want to see what happens when you meet the threat, okay? So she hangs up and you're relieved. Okay, great. She's going to the door. Slow her down again. Oh, I broke a nail or something. So something happened to slow her down. Now, you can't wait too long. If you wait too long, the audience tunes out. They don't care anymore. Get to the goddamn door, okay? So finally, she gets to the door and you're like ready. And she opens the door and there's nothing there. And you go, huh. And that's when the monster jumps up, when you've been given relief, okay? I think the best way to scare somebody is make them laugh. And then the thing comes out. So... That's the best kind of scare, the scares that come from suspense. So if I could inject that, and which is, that's part of what the point of view would have done, is, you know, build some suspense. Let me let you know when you're watching the movie that there's zombies nearby. Show that they're camouflaged. So, oh, my God, I'm never going to know when they're nearby. And those things were, I got my hand slapped and wasn't allowed to do it, you know. How is it that Night of the Living Dead got remade? I think that George was uh, pitching all sorts of products, and they were only interested in a remake of Night of the Living Dead, you know, a zombie movie. That was George's, you know, claim to fame. So when he came to me and he said, well, we're going to remake Night of the Living Dead, I was thinking, oh, great, I'm going to make zombies again after Dawn of the Dead. But he said, no, no, I want you to direct it. Because I had directed three episodes of Tales from the Dark Side. And out of 74 episodes, 10 of them, I think, are really good. John Harrison did a great one. Michael Gornick did a great one. But the ones I directed, they actually had feature scripts written for feature movies. So based on that, George thought I could do, you know, a a job directing Night of the Living Dead. But unfortunately, he wasn't there when I did it. He was there the first day and, you know, and was great, answered some questions, you know, helped with some shots, you know. And he came back toward the end, you know, when we were... Because he was writing The Dark Half. He had a deadline to write The Dark Half. If he had been there, it would have been a, a really great... It was the worst experience of my life, shooting that movie. I couldn't wait for the birds to start chirping at four in the morning, so we couldn't do any more sound takes. You know, I just wanted to go home. Because the movie is only 30% of what I intended to do. I had some elaborate stuff planned, you know, that we never got to do, you know. But, 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 I went to a midnight screening of it. I was invited to do a Q&A. I did a Q&A at 11 o'clock, and they were going to show the movie at midnight. And I wasn't going to stick around, but I did. And I watched it for the first time objectively, and it's good. The actors are terrific. The suspense is there, you know. So even though I, my selfish feeling of it's only 30% of what I intended to do, I mean, I get comments all the time. People love that movie. It's one of the better remakes that they've seen out there. And there's so many remakes and sequels, you know. What is it about zombies that seems to fascinate people, particularly lately? Well, they're us, you know. It's like what Barbara says in Night of the Dead. They're us and we're them, you know. Well, you know, a lot of people just love the idea of uh, blowing away targets. Uh, Human being targets, you know. Okay, shoot them in the head. You know, why is The Walking Dead so popular? Why is that the number one show on television? You know, it's zombies. 
The best zombies, I think, of what Greg is doing in The Walking Dead, the best zombies today. Uh, and there's a lot of CGI there, you know, necessary, because these zombies have been around for so long, now they're decaying and rotting, you know? I was going to direct a remake of Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Do you know that movie? These are cadavers coming out of the graves and becoming zombies. So you can imagine, I mean, that would have been my answer to Greg, little competitive thing. Look at these zombies, you know, because but there would have to be a lot of blue because you're going to see through them, a lot of, you know, CGI blue. So these zombies would be fresh cadavers coming out of the grave. Well, that movie never happened, but that would have been my new wave of zombies. And if I couldn't do Death Island with the voodoo Haiti zombies, then that would have been the next great thing, you know. But why do they love zombies? I mean, I, you know, that's a question to ask the masses. That's kind of an essay question, I think. Well, you're giving people a preview of their ultimate fate. What's in store for all of us? Death and decay. On Dawn of the Dead, I just painted them gray. Just so you would see there's a difference between that guy. Well, this guy's a zombie because he's gray. We didn't do elaborate stuff, you know. On Day of the Dead, now, Day of the Dead was different. I did a lot of research with the county coroner and... How would a body die if it was in the basement? How would a body die if it was up in an attic in the heat, you know, if it drowned, you know? So all of the zombies in Day of the Dead are different because um, different ethnicities would rot different than somebody who died, bloated in the basement or something, you know? So I made them all different and caught hell for it. In the scene where all the arms come through the wall in Day of the Dead, okay? The assistant director come over and what? what? They're all different. Because they're used to Dawn of the Dead where they're all gray. They're all one color. And I explained, you know, coroner, death, ethnicity, blah, 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 you know. And I stuck to that. I made all, make sure all the zombies were different looking, you know, because that's the way it would be. So what's coming? I don't know. Pretty soon it'll be like a Ray Harryhausen skeleton fencing scene. You know, they're just withered away to nothing, you know. And that, but that's one of the things that George Romero used to, he had, a, he had a big thing about that. He sold bumper stickers at conventions that said, fast zombies suck, okay? But I understand Zack Snyder making them run in the remake of Dawn of the Dead, because you got to do something to make zombies scary again, you know? I mean, you had Joe Piscopo's beer commercial, Michael Jackson's thriller, you know? Zombies, how do you make them scary again, you know? And uh, I think they've accomplished that, you know, of course, in The Walking Dead. How did they accomplish that? Well, because they're more decayed, they're elaborate. The the bones, the skeletons, the teeth, they're they're more eviscerated, they're more decomposed. You know, we could get away with zombies who, like in Night of the Living Dead, a guy's walking at you in a suit and tie, made up like a cadaver in a funeral home. But he's a zombie, okay? Uh, we could get away with just the coloring, you know, on certain zombies. In The Walking Dead, almost every zombie is an elaborate skull, you know. So that's why I say those are the best zombies today. What was it like being on the other end of the makeup chair from dusk till dawn? Oh, <laughs> well, I, I love that experience. In fact, you know, Greg was there sitting side by side. And I never said anything about the effects because I'm an actor, you know. But, but when Fred Williamson was throwing the vampires on the, the overturned table legs... You know, and they were being pierced by the legs. I turned to Greg and I said, shouldn't there be blood? Oh, shut the fuck up, he said. <laughs> so I wasn't allowed to. Uh... However, however, there's a different case. On Django Unchained, okay, there was a slave up in the tree, okay, and I was the guy that had the, the dogs, okay. The dog trainers gave us like a 10-minute lesson on controlling the dogs. These were Belgian Malinois shepherds. 
and they were uh, Butch and, and King, I think, were the names. And they would eventually attack the slave when they bring him down from the tree. So they gave us a lesson with the dogs. The guy was just talking to the dogs. Turn left, the dog turned left. Turn right. The dog did whatever he said as if he understood English. He said, okay, now I'm going to make the dogs go crazy, and I want you to hold them back. So he did this thing, and the dogs dragged me 30 feet into the swamp on my knees. It was like trying to hold back a car. I eventually was able to brace myself and, you know, get my feet positioned. I could hold on to the dogs, although they never ran so fast where they would be dragging me. It's just holding them back during the scene where DiCaprio is questioning the slave in the tree. So they bring the slave down, and they attach a fake arm to him, and the dogs are supposed to rip off the arm. And um, his real arm was behind his back, the actor. And every time they did the take, you could see the guy's real arm. And Quentin was getting a little frustrated. And I didn't want to say anything, because it's K&B, it's my friends, they're doing the effects, you know, doing fabulous effects. But Quentin walked past me at one point, and he asked me about it. I says, well, you know, when I did that effect in uh, Day of the Dead, we cut the guy's arm off, you know. I dug a hole under the guy, so his real arm goes into the hole. And all you're aware of is his body and whatever fake arm is on there, which we cut off in Day of the Dead. I said, but don't say that I said anything when you go back to the set, okay? And he didn't. He went back and he waited a couple of minutes. He said, why don't you guys dig a hole under him for his arm, you know? And he got some resistance. He says, no, no, I think it's really going to work. You know, so they did it. It was beautiful. They did seven takes. And um, so I'm standing there and Quentin comes by and I, he puts something in my hand. And look, and it's five bucks, okay? He said, we have a tradition on my set where if somebody from another department solves another department's problem, it's the $5 shot. So I became the $5 hero that day because I solved the problem of the fake arm. But the next day, I became the purple penis guy. Because if you fall asleep on a Tarantino set, I don't know how they blow it up, I don't know where they hide it, but they pull out this big purple penis and they put it in your face while you're asleep. They take a picture of you with the purple penis. Greg just recently told me that the name of the penis is Big Jerry, okay? So luckily, I fell asleep kind of forward and the penis is back here. I wasn't like, you know, <laughs> the penis in my face. Now we're in a swamp. We're in a swamp. The only hard surface is two or three feet on either side of the dirt road. We're in a swamp, and they bring a big billboard kind of poster thing with all the people who have fallen asleep with Big Jerry in their face to ceremoniously add me in the swamp to add my picture to the people that have fallen asleep. You know, That's what it's like on a Tarantino set. He's, just, he's a big genius, I think. You know. Also, have you seen Django Unchained? My name in the script was, I don't know, Trapper Bickle or whatever the hell it was, you know. So I, I reported to New Orleans, and I'm hanging out with Greg and his crew, and they said, how do you like the way Quentin changed your name? He changed my name? They said, yeah, you're Trapper Cheney now, which is Lon Cheney, you know. I mean, when Guillermo de Toro won the Golden Globe Award, what's the last thing he said? Lon Chaney is smiling on us somewhere. I almost cried, you know. I have a son named Lon. I, Lon Chaney is the whole reason I do what I do. Let's pretend people have never heard of Lon Chaney. Listen, students come into my school and don't know who Boris Karloff is. If you're interested in makeup, surely you would research some of the greatest makeups in the history. Frankenstein, you know, or the ghoul, you know, any number of makeup that Jack Pierce did to Karloff, Okay. So, but Lon Chaney, you know, I saw this movie, Men of a Thousand Faces, and before that movie, like I said earlier, 
I believed that Frankenstein was real, Wolfman was real, all that stuff was real. That movie was the first thing that showed me somebody creates those monsters. Because Lon Chaney was a silent film actor who was the first Phantom of the Opera, was the first hunchback of Notre Dame. So he created that stuff. And I was like, oh my God. So that I decided that day that I'm going to be one of the guys that creates the monsters because of Lon Chaney. And for a long time, I thought James Cagney was Lon Chaney until Famous Monsters magazine, you know, I discovered that and saw the real pictures of Lon Chaney as the Phantom of the Hunchback, you know. So, yeah, uh, big influence. Okay, so why, why did I see that movie and go through a huge change in my life? Why didn't I see that movie? And it's like any other movie that I saw, you know, go on with your life. I'm an Italian kid loafing on the corners of Little Italy and Pittsburgh, you know. Why did that movie have such a fantastic dynamic effect on me that I wanted to be Lon Chaney? From that day on, I'm trying to earn money to buy makeup and try to learn how to do this stuff. I shine shoes in my neighborhood. You know, I'm a little kid. I'm 11 years old. I'm shining shoes in just to get makeup to buy crepe hair or collodion, you know. Lon Chaney was famous in his day for incredible makeups, and Dick Smith became pretty well-known in the 70s after he did Little Big Man and The Exorcist. But in the 80s, makeup artists like you became celebrities, stars. Your name was Naudian Straw. Did you ever think that could happen? No. I'm glad, you know, it happened. Because I didn't think I was very good. I couldn't make a bald cap disappear. I couldn't make the edges disappear. I mean... How did they do that? Then I look in Famous Monsters, and here's Rick Baker creating foam latex. I hated him, you know. I'm 18, and he's 14, you know, doing foam latex. Oh, shit. He knows so much more. And plus, he's incredible, you know. Rick Baker built a Nosferatu out of paper mache that is good enough for a movie close-up. It's so spectacular. And I said to him, aren't you tired of showing people how fabulous you are? He said, no, no, no. I mean, he's kind of retired from the movies, but he's still doing paper mache Nosferatus. And the, the latest thing he did was a laser print of a Frankenstein he created and built sets around it. You know, there's photos of it on Instagram. It's just incredible. Yeah, I thought Rick Baker was the rock star of makeup effects. But with Dick Smith teaching kind of privately, and uh, there's great books out there now, or Richard... Uh, Richard Corson's stage makeup has a lot of great information in it. Vincent Kehoe's The Technique of Film and Television Makeup. You can go out there and grab a book and teach yourself. But we're talking about the 50s. I'm eight years old in the 1954 when The Creature from the Black Lagoon came out, which blew us all away. This is a costume, you know, that was, to, even today, is one of the greatest. Guillermo de Toro, again, Shape of Water, that's his Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's, it's a love story, you know, so... What did you think of the creature costume in The Shape of Water? I, well, I love that creature. That's Mike Hill. Mike Hill is one of the greatest uh, imitators. He creates, uh, you know, Oliver Reed is like sitting there. His Bella Lugosi is like he's really alive. And Mike Hill does all this wonderful stuff. But yeah, I like that creature. I like the story, you know. And it, uh, I'm a sucker for a good love story. Did you ever see Trapeze by any chance? Great love story. Yeah, I love that. I was a kid, I loved this love story. Her with Joaquin Phoenix, great love story. Okay, so I'm a kid in the 50s, and there's nowhere to learn this stuff, you know? I can buy a bald wig or something from a, a costume store my brother turned me on to, crepe hair, you know? I asked my cousin one day, um, oh, how do, how do they put the hair on for a werewolf? And he said, well, they use spirit gum. You know, you've heard of spirit gum. I thought he said spearmint gum. 
I'm chewing gum and sticking it on my face and hair. This can't be right, you know? This is how ignorant I was to the knowledge of how to do this stuff back then. Speaking of spirit gum, my brother-in-law did a terrific wolfman makeup on himself for a Halloween party. Then he fell asleep with the makeup on, and I guess his beard started growing out, and it made the removal quite painful. The hair stuck to it. When Jack Pierce did Karloff as Frankenstein, that was like a nine-and-a-half-hour makeup job because he built it from scratch with cotton and collodion. Collodion is 24% ether. You know, it's like it's horrible stuff. Karloff would sleep in the makeup go home and sleep in the makeup with pillows so he wouldn't have to go through the ordeal the next day, you know. And he would say taking it off was the worst part of it. I mean, today, you know, there's a team of makeup artists that try to make you comfortable and they've got sponges and brushes and and solvents and they carefully, you know, when we did Day of the Dead, we just asked them, "Just just go tear it off. And they're tearing off the epithelial layer of their skin when they're removing the foam. You know, they were suffering horribly. But today, it's, you, know, you have to, there's got to be a guy carefully, gingerly removing it from you, painlessly removing it from you. Tell me about your relationship with Greg Nicotero. Oh, okay, I've known Greg since he was 14. He would come visit the set of Dawn of the Dead or something like that, you know, or a creep show. And he met George in Italy in some restaurant and uh, told him he was a big fan. And George remembered him and uh, offered him a job on Day of the Dead. He became, you know, he was an actor in Dawn of the, uh, Day of the Dead. And he was on my crew. Very helpful. He did all my, uh, you know, paperwork and stuff. And then I used him on Monkey Shines. He was a sketch artist. He was very interested in the monsters, you know, and helped me create some of the fake monkeys on Monkey Shines. Whenever I would appear on the Letterman show, Greg was uh, the house sitter. And he also hates spiders. Deathly afraid of spiders. So I bought him a tarantula. It was in a paper bag in a plastic case. Hey, Greg, this is for you. He almost broke my arm when he saw it, you know. So one of the nights when he was house-sitting because I was doing the Letterman show, I had the spider, the tarantula, in an aquarium on the way to the bathroom with two dozen crickets. So Greg in the house, all he would hear was crickets screaming and dying from the tarantula. (laughs) But to go to the bathroom, he had to pass that damn thing. Now, since then, he has created wonderful spiders in movies, you know, mechanical spiders. But that's part of what my time with Greg was, was taunting him. One day we were preparing Day of the Dead. He, I don't know, he threw some water on me or something. So I went and I grabbed some fake blood and threw it on him. It escalated to him throwing like liquid latex on me. And then me, I forget what I did to him after the latex. We went up and he grabbed my my gun, which we used to, to fire blanks. Okay, it's a real gun, but it's full of blanks, okay? So I'm in the basement working on... Because the whole crew was in my basement back then, preparing Day of the Dead. So he comes in, and he fires the gun downstairs. And I ran up, and I wrestled the gun from him. And I opened it, and I saw that every round was spent. Every round had a dent in it. But I said, and I should never have done this, I said, oh, there's one left. And I closed the gun and pointed him right dead on and fired. And the blank went off and showered him with powder burns, okay? And he thought that I did it on purpose. He's never screamed at me and swore at me like he did that day. But 
but they were all spent. I saw every round had a dent in it, okay? So when I said, hey, there's one left, I'm joking. And he thought I really fired because there was one left. Anyway, he was afraid to go home that night because he had powder burns. His dad's a doctor, you know, and Greg was studying. Greg was, went to medical school first. Greg was going to become a doctor. He quit med school to work on monkey shines to become an effects guy. Well, that worked. His dad's very proud of him today, you know. Um, but uh, I shot him in the face. I could have killed Greg Nicotero. So that was a scary time. He's my favorite success story because, you know, he quit medical school. He was just a kid trying to learn stuff, assisted me. And then I, I think he would still, and I told him this, I got three words for you, Greg. No, two words for you as far as your success today. You're good because I've listened to him on the internet. I've listened to his lectures and he really is good. He, he puts together the effects on the, he directs four episodes of The Walking Dead a year, the finale, the opening one, you know. He's a hard worker, but he's my, he's my favorite success story. You ever ask him how he does some of the crazier effects in The Walking Dead? The trough scene that I told you about, I asked him about that. The bicycle girl with no legs, you know, he explained how she was wearing green, you know, the green pants for the, to get rid of her legs, you know. But there are 11, I've counted them, I have them in my iPad, 11 homages to my stuff in The Walking Dead. Like Bub, the zombie from Day of the Dead, he's there. David Emge, the flyboy zombie, there's a homage to him. In Day of the Dead, we did a fake head of Greg that comes to life. You know, when they take the covers off, have you seen that? That's Greg Nicotero's head coming to life. We were going to just put Greg's head through a table and make it look like uh, a severed head, but we, we did the fake head of Greg Nicotero. So he did that in The Walking Dead. There's a head of Greg Nicotero with zombies' feet walking by, and that's strictly because we did that in Day of the Dead. There's even a crate, a creep show crate in The Walking Dead. So Greg is constantly putting home, not just from my stuff, other artists, you know, Rick Baker's stuff, but he's, there's a constant homage in The Walking Dead of our stuff. Day of the Dead is his favorite dead movie, Romero's. And there's always a subtext going on in Romero's Dawn of the Dead was the whole shopping mall. And shopping malls were new back then, you know. But the idea of mindless people walking around listening to the music, the music was important in Dawn of the Dead because you're sort of lulled into, you know, the shopping mode, you know. And that's why zombies were dragging toasters and things, you know. That's Romero putting in. And that's what surprised me about Diary of the Dead. I didn't know that George knew so much about social media or stuff, which was a prominent thing in Die of the Dead. So he always tries to take what's going on in the world and put it in his films. Do you know the documentary American Nightmare? Okay, well, there we go. That documentary is all about what was going on in the world when certain horror movies were being made. And they used, they used Night of the Living Dead in George's films as an example of depicting what was going on in the world in the movie. So... George always had that subtext and the humor. I mean, there's a pie. We're throwing pies in zombies' faces in Dawn of the Dead. George has got a cameo. He's Santa Claus in the background, walking around in Dawn of the Dead. So humor was important to George. All his life, his friends would tell me that they would go pick up George to go someplace, 
he would come down wearing a sombrero and bandoleros because he had just seen Marlon Brando in Zapata, okay? Or he wore a cape when Zorro came out, you know? George was always, he was a funny guy. He loved to laugh, and his laugh came out of the depths of the center of the earth. It was so rich and full and deep, you know? And just, I miss him a lot, yeah, yeah. My favorite would be Day of the Dead. My masterpiece is Day of the Dead. I won the Saturn Award for Day of the Dead. And some French thing, I don't know what it was. I wasn't there. They sent it to me. Yeah, that's my masterpiece. The zombies, anyway. What are your favorite effects from that? Well, tearing Joe Pilato apart, you know, tearing him in half. And what's funny about that is uh, we used real pig intestines. We kept a five-gallon drum of pig intestines in the refrigerator. And we used them when there's a zombie on a slab that, that comes up and his guts fall off the floor. There's a dream sequence where one of the characters, Tim DeLeo, one of the soldiers, Glory Cardell has a dream about him sitting up and his guts fall out, okay? So that's where we were using the pig intestines. But when it came time to tear Joe Pilato in half, we had, in the interim, gone to Florida for two or three weeks to shoot the missile silo elevator and the zombies coming through the gates. A lot of stuff we shot down there. While we were gone, somebody unplugged the refrigerator in Pittsburgh. So the pig intestines were rotting for two or three weeks inside this unplugged refrigerator. So when it came time to do Joe Pilato's, it's two in the morning, we can't go out and buy new pig intestines, you know. We had to use those rotting, smelly pig intestines. And Greg Nicotero, he was gut boy. He was in charge of the pig intestines. He was in charge of the guts. So it was Greg, go get us the pig intestines. He came back and he was horrified, you know. And the, you, you can't believe the smell. It was unbelievably unbearable. And we couldn't protect Joe Pilato with anything up his nose because you're looking up his nose. But we had gas masks on. We were painting our lips with English leather, so we were smelling, you know. And the zombies were all had their noses stuffed when they tore Joe apart. The stench was unbelievable, you know. And there's video of Joe Pilato after, when it's over. He's, he's ready to puke because he, he's breathing that for two or three hours, you know, so... Anyway, that's one of the side stories of <laughs> Day of the Dead. So, yeah, one, that was one of my favorites in Day of the Dead. Tearing, and tearing Tasso's head off. Tasso's my best friend, you know, um, one of the soldiers. They tear his head off. And I didn't realize that somebody told me that the sound engineer, as his head was being torn off and he's screaming, gave him a higher-pitched voice because the vocal cords were being you know, pulled. And that's actually Greg Nicotero's fingers in the eyeballs of the fake head, and we're running cables down to make the head work, you know. So it was effects guys that were the featured zombies tearing the head off. So that was pretty fun. And, of course, the autopsy zombie guts falling out, you know. There's a lot of cool stuff in, uh, in Day of the Dead. Uh, you must have tried some things that didn't work at all. Well, the Stephen King thing that I talked about. But um, there was a movie called The Prowler that I did. Some of my best stuff is in The Prowler. But uh, we had to make a cast of the lead actor's head. And I didn't realize, and you can't really tell when you, from the alginate, that there was cinnamon in it, okay? It was flavor, because that's what dentists use to make impressions of your mouth. So if it's good tasting, it's good. But we cast her head in that, and she had a horrible reaction. We dyed her blood red from the alginate. And she's the star of the film. So that went horribly wrong. In Friday the 13th, when they opened the door and Harry Crosby is pinned to the door with arrows, the blood that we were using was Dick Smith's formula. Since then, new formulas have been invented for eye blood, mouth blood, okay? Because the blood has uh, photo flow in it. It's a dark room. 
sort of wetting agent. So the blood was streaming past and out of the appliance that Harry... It burned his eyeball. He had to go to the hospital with the burn on his actual eyeball from that blood, which perhaps necessitated them creating the eye blood and the mouth blood. And tell me a little more about the Day of the Dead. Oh, the, the guy lying on the slab with most of his face gone, all that's there is the brain, but the guy is still alive, moving around. That's a real guy with his head bent so far back for the appliance to go on like a guillotine. Dick Smith, who wrote the introduction to my book, Grand Illusions, talks about that fooling him. Where's the guy's head? He said, I couldn't figure out where the guy's head, because it's a real guy, you know. It's not a fake body with fake arms. It's a real guy. And that, that poor guy is Barry Grass, a friend of mine, who kept saying, Tom, Tom, can I be in the movie? Yeah, Barry, I got a part for you. Okay. His head was bent back for hours in that position. And he was actually drowning from the blood, you know, coming, you know, through it. And so that was one of the, that was a major effect, realistic effect. It fooled Dick Smith. And from dusk till dawn, you turn from a kick-ass biker into a vampiric rat. Then you're beheaded. How did all that come to pass? Howard Berger, the B of KNB, bites me. Okay, I'm sex machine. He bites me. And that's why I always say, that's why I turned into a rat. Because everyone says, how come you're the only guy that turns into a rat? I said, because Howard bites me. It's whatever Howard bites me with. That's why I become a rat. So he bites me. I hide it from everybody. And I turn into the vampire. Remember the teeth? I'm feeling the teeth. And suddenly, okay, there's a scene that you didn't see in there. When Fred Williamson is talking about uh, in Vietnam, killing people, I'm, I'm over there by the pool table. Okay, there's a scene that's not in the movie where I walk over there and now I've got a bullwhip, okay? And I suggested to Robert that I should use the bullwhip because I'm really good with the bullwhip. I, stunt guys trained me with the bullwhip. So he tested me. He, he did a, four or five styrofoam cups, and he wanted to test the rack focus from me to the cup and then back to me. So I took out every styrofoam cup with the bullwhip. He says, great, great, we'll use that. So when I walk over to the pool table, there's one bottle of beer that is still sitting on the, after the big fight. And I... And it's a breakaway bottle, and I take out the bottle. That was a bit, and it didn't wind up in the movie. There's other bits, too, where I'm killing vampires, and I take out a camera and take a picture of them. But I, so I did it as a gag, and Robert liked it. He said, oh, I'll do that again. He did seven takes of me taking a picture after killing the zombies. So um, Howard bites me. I turn into a vampire, and I bite Clooney, and I bite Fred Williamson, who turns into a vampire. And then Fred Williamson throws me through a window. And, that, and I come back later and uh, fall on Clooney. And then he whips me around and pulls me to the ground and yanks off my head. And that's why the head rolls across the floor. It rolls over to Juliet Lewis and she shoots it in the... Uh... Okay, so they obviously cast my head. And after my head pops off the body, that's when the rat head comes out and stuff like that. So... Um, all they did was attach the bullwhip to the head attached to my fake body and yanked it off, you know. And then when it rolls over to Juliet Lewis, I had to lie under on the floor with Juliet Lewis's foot on my face and come to life. And then she shoots the arrow, of course, into the fake head and then kicks it away. And then, of course, I come back as the rat and then she shoots that and the rat explodes on the stage. So, But that was just a simple matter of Howard casting my head. And they did it twice for two different facial expressions. And recently... Do you watch the Orville, the TV series, the Orville? Okay. Remember the scene where the aliens behead some astronaut and they show, that's me. That's my head. 
my, I'm in the Orville. My fake head is the head that the aliens hold up and put in the basket. Is there any kind of monster that you wanted to tackle but haven't had the chance? Hmm. Well, let's see. We've done zombies. I've done the great creature. I saw a picture of Rick Baker's, one of the background masks, or stunt masks, and a guy in England wanted 4,500 pounds for it. You know? So I, I made my own. Rick saw it and loved it on Instagram, thought it was cool. Of course, I gave a lot of credit. This is Rick Baker's fabulous Benicio Del Toro, you know, wolfman makeup. But I, I, I did a werewolf on Tales from the Dark Side. I did a Patty Tom when I made her turn into a werewolf, and I had an 11-year-old kid turn into a werewolf, an episode called Family Reunion. So I've done werewolves. Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein. I have very few favorites, because and people ask me that about my stuff, you know. I, they're all my children. I can't pick a favorite, you know. But the creature from the Black Lagoon, even 1954, that's hard to... Well, of course, you know, Predator, ballsy Predator. That was a great... I have a full-size Predator in my, in my studio. What movies have really scared you? Only two. The Exorcist and Alien. The Alien was like a haunted house in space, you know. The key to that was the editing. You never saw the damn thing. You saw a tail, you saw a face. Because as soon as you see the monster, oh, I can deal with that, it's over. That's why you never show the monster. At the beginning of the film, or like even halfway through it, you wait. You know, you only see that alien when they blast them away from the spaceship at the end. That's what made them scary. In fact, when we did Creep Show, George was apologizing to me. Paul Hirsch was the editor of the crate scene in Creep Show, who went on to do Star Wars, okay? So George came to me and apologized. He said, We just saw, we just saw a screening of uh, that episode, and you don't see Fluffy until the end. But great. I thought that was great. You know, uh, I'm not so self-indulgent that you need to see my work, you know, immediately. For the tension and suspense, yeah, that's what made Aliens such a, a great, scary movie. Because here's the deal, you know, uh, we talked about the magic of movies and how it's kind of hard to watch a movie when you're behind the scenes and not think of the director's choices and the lighting and why did they do this, and makeup effects. The Alien, you didn't have time to think about that. You, you were just scared, okay? And th- I think that's why it scared me so much, because they didn't go into the mode of effects guy, you know. But The Exorcist, that, now I was raised a Catholic, okay? We're brainwashed with that stuff growing up. So The Exorcist reached in deeply into your subconscious and scared you on a deep level, you know. Joe Dante was talking about the first half was just setting up, you know, conflict with the priest and his mother. I mean, even that, even that was, the way Freakin shot that, the way he shot the dream of her coming up in black and white and silent, you really felt you were in a dream, you know? It was just brilliantly shot. I mean, if you see the behind the scenes of the making of The Exorcist, there's something in there where Ellen Burstyn was supposed to be yanked backwards. And she didn't, she got hurt or something, you know? And she said to the stunt guy, you know, take it easy, you know? And she caught William Friedkin winking at the stunt guy to do it better or more the next time. And boy, that pissed her off. Friedkin would fire guns in the set just to get a jolt from people, you know. I've done that, and it works, you know. You you get a nice jolt, a realistic reaction, okay? So it was him and the way he shot that damn movie that scared us so bad. And and Dick Smith, you know. Have you seen the, the test makeups that he was doing on Reagan? They were sort of really more elaborate than he wound up with, but she was still scary as hell. And, you know, Eileen Dietz did all the horrible puking and the crucifix and stuff like that. 
Uh, I can imagine freaking sparing poor Linda Blair from going through all that because it was an elaborate system of thin plexiglass pipes that went around the face, into the mouth, into a nozzle. That she, she actually, Linda Blair, actually, I interviewed her. She was actually saying that she had that piece. She did it once? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because then the appliances went over that, you know. I thought Eileen Dietz... Well, maybe Linda Blair did it for when she's lying there and it's just like flowing out of her face, you know. But I'm pretty sure in Eileen Dietz's book she describes, and there are pictures, and it's not Linda Blair. It's You can just tell it's not Linda when Dick is applying the plexiglass, you know. But he did things like uh, he knew that there would be a chemical reaction from something chloride, some dry cleaner formula. If you paint foam rubber with that, it swells. So he painted Help Me on Linda Blair's. Well, on the rubber chest, okay. And they shot it in reverse. They put a hair dryer on it so the swelling would disappear. And you really don't see it that well in the film. What's her face calls him up to the room and says, look at this. And they, she pulls up Linda Blair's shirt and, and help me. They did too many cutaways away from it. You didn't quite see help. You, you see it eventually. You know? But that's Dick Smith thinking of how to incorporate what he knew to be a chemical reaction with Carbon tetrachloride, uh, that was it. And uh, foam rubber, okay. The levitation, you can see the wire. They weren't erasing it back then. They weren't. They didn't know how to erase it back then. I'm just thinking of all the highlights and the things of the, of the exorcist. But just the story, he slowly made you believe that the demon was in her. Because you're doubting it like Father Karras is doubting it, you know. Listening to the backwards and then playing it forward, you know. Uh, recordings, but the idea that she knew things about Father Karras, like, hey, Father, can you help an altar boy from the subway? Now you're starting to believe with him that there's a demon inside her. And when you finally do believe it, I don't mean the horror, the language, you know? Um, you know, that's Mercedes McCambridge tied to a chair, freaking tied her to a chair, and was feeding her, like, I don't know, milk and peanut butter or something. Whiskey was also involved. Oh, I'm sure whiskey was involved. I did uh, The Glass Menagerie with Mercedes McCambridge. And, uh, yeah, her voice is way down there anyway. So, uh, but no, it deeply, the story, you know, I read the book first, you know. And then they come out with The Exorcist, the version you've never seen before. Have you seen that? Where they did the girl walking backward? I mean, when I first saw The Exorcist, the hair in the back of my neck, you know, at some moments, you know. Then I saw that one with all the CGI, they, and they made, it, they made it scarier. They made the scariest movie I've ever seen scary. When she comes down the stairs and then, and then the blood upside down, oh, man, the hair on my neck went again, you know? So they succeeded in scaring me, you know, uh, again with The Exorcist. Uh, well, I think it's the scariest movie that I've ever seen. You think that was the pinnacle of Dick Smith's work, at least in horror? Well, let's see. The Godfather, Taxi Driver... Ghost Story was pretty elaborate as far as effects from Dick Smith, you know. He came to visit me on, my, on the set of Creepshow before doing Ghost Story. And I showed him Nate's corpse hands, where I extended the skeletal bones beyond his real fingers. He said, that's interesting. I'm going to use that on my next thing. And he did it. He used it in Ghost Story. But that's what it's like. People always say, is there competition between you, Rob Bottin, Rick Baker? I said, no, man, it's like a brotherhood. 
We share things. If I go see a Rick Baker, I think of it as a Rick, an exhibit from one of my favorite artists. Or if I go see a, a Rick Baker movie or something Rob Bottin did. So it's kind of like a brotherhood where we exchange information. As I, I, as I said earlier, Bottin completely guided me on how to build a uh, animatronic, you know, a creature, you know. So, so it's not a competition. And never with Dick Smith was it like that. It was always, you know, here's how I did it. And what's interesting is the makeup he did on Max... Max von Sydow was like 40. And because of The Exorcist, he almost stopped getting work because they thought he was like an old guy, you know? Now he looks like the makeup. That Dick, that's how good Dick Smith was in predicting how your face would change you know, when you age, you know? Theater Bazaar. Have you ever seen Theater Bazaar? I directed one episode in that. Uh, it's called Wet Dreams. Let me just briefly, uh, because Greg Nicotero was involved. I'm in Spain with Greg Nicotero at the Sitges Film Festival. He can't leave the hotel because he ate something on the airplane. He couldn't leave the bathroom. And he, he's the guy that insisted that I go because he was going to give me a Lifetime Achievement Award, which they did give me. And he's on stage dying to get back to the hotel room. And I'm delaying it as much as possible because you've got an interpreter, you know, and I said, let me, let me just correct the introduction for Greg Nicotero. This is Academy Award winning Greg. And he's shaking violently because he has to get back to the hotel room. Anyway, finally, when he's able to leave the hotel, we go to a restaurant. And I said, I'm directing this thing called Wet Dreams. And I described to him what a female body needs to do. He says, I'll give you that for your birthday. So we built this thing and gave it to me for my birthday. In the episode, there's a woman almost naked taunting this guy. It's a dream sequence, okay? And she lulls him forward. It's my wife playing the part. At one time, she's, she fondles her breasts, and the guy looking at her looks in the mirror like, wow. When they cut back, she's fondling her breasts, and the camera follows her hand down to her crouch. And instead of her a vagina, it's insect tentacles and crab things and she pulls the guy close and his ass tenses and obviously she's tearing off his this is a dream i had when i was like nine years old a girl in the neighborhood you know we're in my basement we're going to play doctor and she takes off her clothes and there's these insect tentacles i put it in that episode and greg built the body <laughs> for my birthday this reminds me of dario argento and all the imagery that he draws from his dreams you know when i did that effect i told you about uh with piper laurie he started calling me a volcano of the mind. But I always consider him, after opera, he's just a visual style, you know, with a bullet coming through the peephole and taking out the phone after it goes. That's incredible. That's, that's, but that's interesting to know that you, you're saying he, he also brings things out of his dreams. You know? The too bad the movies he did in America, the two evil eyes, uh, aren't as good as the ones he does that he did in Italy. Last thing, tell me a little more about how movies are like magic tricks. I know you're a big fan of Harry Houdini. As special makeup effects artists, okay, we talked about the mindset, but we do the same thing that a magician does. A magician will misdirect you. Like I said, he'll make you look here. He's pulling flowers out of his butt because you weren't looking down there. We do the same thing in composition on the screen as far as the, creating the effects in misdirecting you. And mechanical devices. You wouldn't believe the mechanical devices involved in magic tricks. There was a magician that showed me a trick with, the, with dice. He let you have it. He, and you set the dice up so a number is facing up. Now, he's never seen it, okay? 
and he's over there telling you what the number is, because of the electronic device in the dice that's sending a signal to his cell phone in his pocket. If it's six, there's six beeps that go off, and he knows it's a six. That's an elaborate mechanical device, you know. There's, there's, a, there's a beheading gag that a magician does where you flip a switch and it, it, it releases the blade so it's not cutting you, but the blade comes right in to the hole below and cuts the cabbage in half after you're safe. So it's mechanical devices and misdirection, and that's exactly what we do with makeup effects to make you believe that what you're seeing, you know, is really happening. Uh, in fact, the books that I wrote are called Grand Illusions. I think of what we do as magic tricks. And that was Tom Savini. Thank you for joining us on season two of Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Zanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror and Cut. Cut.